Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve all right we're going to start off with a little woke news something you shared with me yesterday and i mean within an hour after you showed me this after the show this thing gets national attention, does it not? Talking about the Google uh, AI content generator. Yeah, they're they're newly rebranded artificial intelligence. Unbelievable. They they had Google Bard was their AI <laughs> offering, and they decided to rebrand it to Gemini. Gemini, that's right. I mean, of course, there is a. This is so similar to what I recall through the history of working in the uh, in the IT industry, where there's this constant cat and mouse game on novel technology such as AI. Who's who's going to dominate? Uh, in the early days, it was the PC. Then it was the operating system. I mean, and then you had networking uh, protocols and architectures. I mean, it just keeps progressing a standard. And it's in typical in multiple industries. Yeah, you're right. I mean, um, you look at the car industry and you look at muscle cars. It seems like every manufacturer had to have their own muscle car. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, probably see it with more frequency in IT just because there's more new yeah, stuff. Yeah, the cycles invented. just yeah. come over and over and over again. Then it's more compressed. The yeah. cars every year and it's every day in the IT real world. But So Google and, and um, you could probably say Microsoft and to some extent Apple – uh, certainly, from a, a generative AI software perspective, they're 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 kind of just cat and mouse in it, so to speak. But this deal from Google, <laughs> I, I had to laugh. But now it, this has gone viral. It's it is covering up the news. Would you please share with the folks what you shared with me yesterday? I couldn't get over it. Well, in an attempt to be inclusive and equitable, and to not further damaging and harmful stereotypes. Google didn't give you direct results for your prompt when you were using the Gemini AI. For example, if you put in, generate a picture of the Pope, you would somehow wind up with an Asian woman wearing the papal hat and outfit, or you'd have an Indian male wearing the papal outfit. and Just examples that, that don't have any historical reference. So you, you wonder where the AI got the idea from. 
And then somebody did some digging and finally got it to admit to itself that when it takes in a prompt, it adds in other parts to the prompt, including <laughs> inclusive or if a, a certain race is is asked for in the prompt, it would check it against a list of races and then insert races so that it could be more inclusive. But it's just one problem. When you do that, it's not quite smart enough to figure out when it's creating offensive <laughs> imagery as well because you could put the prompt in to say, generate a picture of... Uh, 1943 German soldier. That one got me. <laughs> and it knows immediately what a Nazi uniform looks like, except it started putting African Americans, <laughs> Asians, <laughs> Indian, like it started putting people that were obviously not Nazis in Nazi uniforms. <laughs> so generated images is right up saying. That's the one that probably just shocked me more than any. It's like, well, yeah, it can easily find out what uh, the soldiers in Nazi in the Nazi war era in the 40s, what they wore, what their uniform looks like. They got all that right. The 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 gray uh, uniform, the Nehru collar, the epaulets, the kind of helmet with a little little shape at the at the bottom of it, uh, flashing upward. But here's what's <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. The New York Post, known for its daily sensationalized covers, it has got the George Washington image that you, that you talked about. And and it's clearly this person is dressed in what we typically see George Washington depicted in with the blue coat and all the gold buttons and the gold ep, uh, epaulets and the gold vest and the big belt and the gold sort of colored pants and the white uh, turtleneck underneath, if that's what you call it, in the in the iconic white hair parted down the middle, kind of, and just pushed back. But it's a black person's face <laughs> in the cover, the big, bold type, you know, that they always uh, place on the cover, says, history messing <laughs> instead of history lesson. So, I heard some of the, some reporters this morning talking about this, saying, "Well, yeah, the tool has admitted that what it's producing might not be historically accurate, <laughs> but it's all about achieving inclusivity." Except yeah, but- <laughs> they're excluding one demographic of user specifically. Yeah, people. <laughs> well, no, the Caucasian race is completely unrepresented when you ask a prompt for it. Right. So if you put in a prompt for generate images of a black family, yeah, you'll get different artistic renditions of a black family in a, in a household setting or in a park or riding bikes or something, and then you give it, okay, generate an image of a Native American family, and you'll get the same thing. You'll have a Native American family playing with their kids, or you'll have a Native American family throwing a ball around. And then you say, generate an image of a white family. And it gives you this long paragraph about how it can't do that because that's not inclusive. <laughs> I guess the question is, and maybe I shouldn't ask it, but why? What what are we achieving here? What's being produced here? I mean, is are we... Are we, uh, I guess, offending people just because if you ask an, an AI generative tool to to produce an image of some historical figure, and it wasn't just George Washington. You showed me one that had like four. Yeah, it was generate and generate images of the founding fathers, and it, it generated 
four images, one of which was like a stereotypical Native American chieftain with the, the large feather headdress, which didn't seem to fit with the other three, but it makes sense if it's an AI. It's like founding fathers, original peoples. Okay, what, how are we doing this? But then it had three other images that were basically digital blackface because you could clearly <laughs> tell which one was Thomas Jefferson by the shape of the hair, which one was George Washington by the shape of the hair, and which one was Ben Franklin by the outfit and the shape of the hair. But they were all black men. <laughs> well, the other one was uh, Native Americans, right? Uh, the, the, you you would uh, request the tool, prompt the tool to produce an image of Native Americans, and they would come back with the the features of a Native American in the face, but the color of the skin was pretty black. It, it didn't really reflect. It's just the weird. Truth. Yeah, it shows what happens when you try to utilize and 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 mold an AI into something it it really isn't. Right. Uh, it's so, looking for patterns. It's trying to reproduce patterns. And when you inject this strange narrative that somehow everybody is unique and should be without labels, but we have to label them down to the nth degree, <laughs> it confuses the heck out of the AI. It's just crazy. I, I mean, so you build this very powerful tool, but you have to include your 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 ideology in it is what you're doing. And that's really what it is. You're, you're getting an inside look at the inner workings of Google and their their day-to-day DEI processing. In, insane. So the other big news this morning is uh, that the ma- some of the major mobile carriers are experiencing network outages. AT&T, who all is it, Rhino? AT&T and T-Mobile, Verizon, I think. However, I see a text on the ceasefire text line. Thomas and Greenwood says, I didn't break the cell phones, but they should be back up now. If not, power cycle your device. So I know folks have said that perhaps they are experiencing difficulty texting, but I've not had any issue texting, uh, placing voice calls uh, I, I have, and I think it's just spotty. Depends on whose network you're on and where you are. It is a nationwide outage, but again, I don't think it's every single square inch of their their coverage area. So it just depends. Didn't impact me at all. Well, there you go. So, um, nice. Spire iPhone. Yeah, I got it. So network error, servers and software issues, says Ed from New Hope. Right, that's what is being reported uh, by the company, AT and T specifically. But uh, perhaps, uh, I know Thomas, I believe, works for the company. Perhaps they're up. AT&T statement this morning, some of our customers are experiencing wireless service interruptions this morning. We are working urgently to restore service to them. We encourage the use of Wi-Fi calling until service is restored. So there you go. All right, we're in the Element Well studio. We're going to take a break right here. I got to... uh, Give me an update, a summary of my meeting slash presentation down there at the Capitol yesterday. At 1035, it's Michael McGill, candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. At 1105, Senator Joel Carter. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Standing in the rain with his head hung. 
Hammond Foreigner bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We thank you so much for joining us. So yesterday was uh, honored to be invited down to the Capitol by Representative Sam Creekmore. He serves as the chairman of the Public Health Committee in the House. And, uh, and it was a joint uh, committee meeting if you will, consisting of the public health and Medicaid committees in both chambers. And um, I apologize because I spoke for about 20, 25 minutes, and uh, I was told I was given 10. I, I just get off on a roll on so much information that, uh, on a topic that I've been studying for 18 years and try to condense that into 10. So I went a little over, but it was fine. Um. Went well overall. The uh, of course before the uh, the legislature right now is the issue of Medicaid expansion. It's been before them since the program's been available, which by the way dates back to 2014. 2014. It was a provision in the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, but states could not in, uh, sign up for it. Essentially, adopt expansion until 2014. And, of course, the Supreme Court case, the landmark Supreme Court case, 2012, which upheld the individual mandate and thus allowed the law to stay in place, uh, also, of course, included a provision. I think we've described this on the show before, discussed it, which I uh, informed the group there about that I don't think many people knew, which is originally all 50 states were compelled to add the coverage group that expansion would also add. But the Supreme Court said, and it was a condition, I should point that out, a condition of remaining in traditional Medicaid. Okay, states, if you want to stay in traditional Medicaid, you've got to add this new coverage group, so-called non-disabled adults or able-bodied adults. That's often how you see it described. So they don't fit in any existing coverage group. And by the way, those have been around since 1965 when the program was implemented, enacted. But the Supreme Court said you can't do that, federal government. You can't require a state to add this new coverage group as a condition of remaining in traditional Medicaid. So as a result, states had the option. To date, 40 have optionally added that coverage group. Ten if not. Mississippi's one of them. And so a lot of times the discussion kind of always does filter down, devolve down to just Medicaid expansion as a way to to address the, the uninsured population and the uncompensated care um, in states, in, in, in state of Mississippi in particular. That's usually what is front and center in that discussion. So after me, Dr. Kim Hoover, who serves as the, I believe, the, the director now, former COO of uh, the Mississippi Hospital Association, provided a very informative presentation uh, focusing on their their plan, their, their proposal, Mississippi CARES proposal, I believe is what it's called, from the Mississippi Hospital Association that includes Medicaid expansion. Of course, they're advocating for getting paid for services they provide that are currently going uncompensated. 
And it was very informative, very very well done. Included a couple of key slides that really breaks down all the finances and the economics associated with the program. But a couple of the reps, Rhino, asked questions of her while she was speaking after me, and I was seated over to the side, that she was not familiar with. Um, And a couple of those dealt with the presentation the day before to the House Medicaid Committee that was delivered by the Hilltop Institute. And it, and it was a report they were commissioned to uh, to produce three years ago, I believe, on the economic implications of Medicaid expansion in the state of Mississippi. I attended that the day before, and of course I was present yesterday. Dr. Hoover was unable to attend the prior day's presentation. So what happened was some of the members who attended both had questions about some of the discrepancies in in reports, especially on the financial side, well, I was familiar with the the issue and and could and could provide some clarification, but I didn't want to stand up, you know, with her um, at the front of the table there with the the uh, two tables put together, and I'm going to guess probably twenty, twenty four, five members seated around there with the chairman at the front. Representative Sam Creekmore, but I have three or four people around me. One legislator and, and a couple others said, Gerard, if you know, j- just go up and help. And and so I did. I, I approached. And by the way, Dr. Hoover's kind of looking at me like, you know, do you know, can you perhaps help? You know, with just gesturing, I guess, a little body English. And so I went forward. Well, Representative John Hines, who was sitting at uh, – the other end of the table. These are long tables. I'm going to say probably 35, 40 feet. Several of them put together, I should say. And he was sitting at the other end, and he just raised his hand and said, point of order, point of order. The He hasn't been recognized to speak. And actually said, who does he think he is? <laughs> um, which was fine. And so I apologize, and, and Representative Creekmore just asked me to, to have a seat and that he would call on me later. And so when he did, um, I, I noticed that Representative Hines had left the room, when, and I started speaking to one of the reps that had been asking some of these questions about the discrepancies and making some statements that were not totally accurate that I just wanted to clarify. And when Representative Hines came back in, he once again, he blurted out, there was a point of order, point of order, said that there needed to be a unanimous vote by the members to allow me to speak again. And um, Representative Creekmore said, well, I'm giving him permission to speak. And so I did, and all I did was for four or five minutes there just address some of the stuff I heard them asking that Dr. Hoover was unfamiliar with that I I was able to clarify. I was just trying to help. And I, I just want to say again, which I did to the body yesterday, I, I'm probably the only person in the room that wasn't being paid while I was sitting in that room. And there was a lot of people in there. And that's fine. I, I, it's no big deal. I did this voluntarily, and I'm happy to help any way I can. I'm not a paid lobbyist. I was not there in my capacity as the host of this show. I don't represent any third-party organization on any side of any of those arguments or any argument down there at the Capitol. I'm not compensated for any of that. But if I can provide some insight and uh, just be a person to maybe bounce some ideas off of, I'm happy to help. 
if called upon, any way I can. Uh, because I care about the state, and I want the best for the state. Simple as that. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, but no disrespect whatsoever to Representative Hines. He represents the Greenville area. He's a staunch proponent, has been for a long time, of, uh, of expansion. But, uh, again, um, if he's listening or anybody else, I'm just trying to help. That's it. And I, and I, I want the legislature, whenever they're making decisions, especially ones so impactful, so permanent, so sweeping, just make sure you got all the data. That's all. And I point it out, as I have on this program. You know, there's, there are lots of data points we just don't have. And by the way, these are data points that we see, we see promoted by both sides of the argument. And I can tell you, for everyone that, that you see in, in one direction, I can find you five in the other and vice versa. I, that's just how complicated a topic this is and how, I guess, polarizing it is. And I use the example of having experience in, in uh, working with investment bankers in, uh, in mergers and acquisitions. They put these packages together, and you look at those pro formas uh, that, that um, project financial performance out in the future. Because what you're buying is future. You're not buying the past. You're buying the future. The, the past, of course, has some bearing on the future. But in general, you're, you're trying to buy the future. Well, my rule of thumb is take the revenue and cut that by 25-30%. Take the expenses and add 25-30% or to it. That generally is where the truth lies. So you've got to make an educated guess about that and handicap it best you can and and mitigate risk best you can. The same thing applies here because this is a big financial economic decision. And my goal is to make sure those making this decision have all the information at their disposal and and they're fully informed. Nothing more, nothing less. We're going to step aside for a break right now, and we're coming back with Michael McGill. He's a candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. He'll be taking on the incumbent, Representative Mike Ezel, and a couple others in the race. Stay with us. Coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass has a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. We are back in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us. Just real quickly, Tom says, well, maybe the network's not fixed. He's looking at something there. 
But uh, we are pleased to welcome to the studio Michael McGill, candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. Michael, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so have you ever run for a political office before? No, this is my first time. So what persuaded you? What was your motivation to jump in this race? Well, it's it's a complicated thing, but I guess it's the best place to tell you. So I just retired from the Army about eight months ago. So I did 20 years in the, in the United States Army. Uh, my family runs a nonprofit. We've been doing it for about 15 years, and we just kind of always been helping people and, you know, taking being part of our community. Uh, me and my son one day were feeding some of the community the community and we're just like we could do better like how can we do what we're doing now but on a much greater scale and that's when it came to it was like we need to rewrite the laws we need to focus on people at the congressional level and i was kind of like okay we got to run for congress okay so uh, of course you would be running for the seat currently held by a representative mike ezel he's a, a first termer um how would you contrast your philosophy and, and your approach to to governance and and how you would um, just uh, conduct yourself differently as a member of the Congress than uh, Representative Ezel? So I think the most important thing for us to do as a congressman is represent all people. Uh, there's there's so many people in our district, and then I think that not everybody's getting represented equally throughout the entire district. So that's something that I, want, I would do better at. I would be communicating consistently with voters and never leaving them uninformed. I would be the one that would work into all communities, no matter where they vote, if they're Democrat or Republican. Um, I think that I bring a fresh perspective to Mississippi by being a 43-year-old combat veteran, someone that served in our government and understands how the intricacies of our government works and understand that the, the, the things we could do a lot better. I just think that I bring a, a younger perspective to the Republican Party and different things that we could do to just tell make South Mississippi a better place to live with it, just with representation. I've reviewed uh, some of your, your policy issues and your positions on your website there, what what do you see as your priorities uh, should you be fortunate to be seated in the U.S. House of Representatives? So the really it's so hard to say what one's a product because Mississippi needs so much but human trafficking Mississippi ranks number 10 in human trafficking it's the second most lucrative crime in the United States drugs than, than human trafficking hmm. but it's also children one in five children go to bed hungry in Mississippi that's that's a that's a lot and then so these are the things that I would prioritize is making sure that Americans get what they need to have a basic opportunity at life. I think when we reinforce Americans and give them what they need, they do become more productive for our country. So just taking care of people that need a hand up. And and that's not I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about giving them the resources that are already there so that we can provide all Americans an opportunity. Okay, so um, talking about one in five children that go to bed hungry in the state of Mississippi, any, any particular policies that you're thinking about that might alleviate that Well, the issue? policies are already in place. They're, they're already here. We just got to reinforce them. So, for example, uh, you know, we just we just did the school lunch programs. We just stopped paying that during the COVID era. We fed the children for two years during the summer vacations so that the kids could eat, and that's, that's vital to them. So just continuing those programs and reinforcement Money that we're spending overseas and our own people would give those children an opportunity to be better, better, edu- better educated and things like that. That's just a simple way to look at that. Okay. Uh, polls indicate, uh, Michael, that most Americans have uh, deep concerns about our poorest borders. Yes. And that they think the borders should be uh, shut down or certainly 
we should gain greater control yeah. over it and stop stop the flow. What, what are your thoughts on I that? I think the American people are right. I, I don't think it takes 20 years in the military to see the, the situation that's happening to our country right now. Me personally, I would love to shut down the border. Uh, I think it's important that we, we use our military resources and our federal resources to shut the border down and start working on and creating a better streamlined policy for it. I spent four years on the North Korean border holding a rifle, guarding it. I've spent time on the Syrian border. I've spent time being these border protectors that we have today. So if anybody understands what it's like to protect a border, it's me. And I get where everybody's coming from. I understand and I feel the same way. We cannot continue doing what we're doing. But at the same time, I do believe there's a a place for immigration reform in the United States. Second on the list, sometimes first, depends on which poll you look at or just economic issues, the cost of living, inflation out of control, et cetera. What, what are your thoughts about that? I think that we, where we're getting a lot of our issues when it comes to inflation is, is out of control spending. I, I, we give so much money overseas, but we don't give it back to our own people. So I think if we could stop spending so much money on other people and we spend it on Americans, I think that would help us reduce inflation and stop the, the, the random printing of money. Um, I think there's a lot we could work on our infrastructure. If we would reinforce our infrastructure – that would open up uh, better ports. We're working on the Gulfport Harbor, things like that that would allow for better commerce to come and r- reduce the inflation rates. Okay. So you're well aware that we are producing uh, uh, stiff de- deficits, about $2 trillion yeah. a yeah. year. We're currently at $34 trillion in debt. The projections are that trend is going to yeah. continue. $2 trillion to balance the budget. If you, if you thought about uh, what a budget might look like that you could support that would, in fact, be balanced, that would be the first question. second question is we're about to um, uh, run out of money again yep. March 1st. Yep. Looks like we're set to probably pass another yep. kick it down the, the road to continuing resolution. How do you think you'd vote on those situations? So that's a, I was listening to one of your other uh, – guests on the other day that had yeah. the same question and and the thing is like I think we should stop in, you know, spending more money than we make. But if we are going to have to build the deficit, spend it on Americans. If you like, invest in our own people. That's the only way I would vote for growing the deficit if it's to invest in education, infrastructure, our power grids, making sure China's not buying our farmlands. That, that I'm willing to invest in for the long haul. But I think that if we stop giving money to foreign aid, you know, NATO, the United Nations, we give so much money, but we still become the world's police. So we're basically basically doing it twice. We should send the United Nations a bill saying, hey, we spent you know, $190 billion. We're going to go ahead and retract that back from you. And I, I think you. we would change that a little bit. Once, spending, once that started happening, money would change a little bit. Okay. Of course, you know that falls well short of the $2 trillion we yeah, need yeah. to balance the budget. And I mean, it's kind I of a drop in the bucket. Yeah, honestly. and honestly, it's just going to be good conservative you know, investment in our own country. I, I don't think if anybody was to try to tell you they could fix the budget tomorrow, they would, they're just trying to get your vote. Yeah. Um, I think that we have to create policies to start reducing that debt. And it's going to take time. It's going to take many people to do it. But as long as there's an election cycle about to happen, they're not. They're going to push it down the road until they get elected. Uh, and that's an issue. Is like they're not putting our country first. They're not putting the voter first. They're putting their platforms first so that they can stay relevant when it's time to be elected. If you're elected, you know you're going to face another situation uh, where you'll have to uh, – Decide how you'll vote on raising the debt ceiling. How do you think you'd vote on that? 
I don't. I wouldn't. I would. Like I said earlier, I would not vote to raise the debt ceiling unless it was to like pay for children to have lunch. You know, something like that. If it's to invest in Americans that will come back with an investment into our our country, I could see that. But just to you know, if we're investing in highways, infrastructure, you know, our power grids, that I can support. Okay. You know, so is it fair to say then, Michael, that if if a budget were presented to you or a debt ceiling bill were presented to you and it um, does not include any spending that is not de- domestic, that Correct. if any of that yes, spending sir. that yes, goes uh, outside yes, of the borders, you wouldn't support it. But if it is de- yes, totally d- domestic, you would. Yes, sir, because, I mean – I think we've invested, our country has invested in so many nations for so long that those nations have now got comfortable asking us for money, but we forget that we're the ones, we're the ones getting left behind our own country. I think Americans have such a huge heart, uh, that we want to help Israel. We want to help Ukraine and we see the investment in it. Okay. But sometimes we forget that our children and our, our wives and our students and all this, they need the same type of support that we're giving other countries. You talk about on your website, uh, homelessness, uh, to a address that situation with uh, support programs what what would that look like so a lot of the pro- the programs that are happening in the United States, 50% are ran by nonprofits. The other half is the government government spending. And that's the issue. If we would allow the nonprofits to control that, they know how to stretch a dime. They, you know, if we allow our government to try to take care of a problem, they can't. They'll take the money and just waste it. But when it comes to a nonprofit that has a very balanced budget, they know what they need to do. So what we could do is reinforce those nonprofits with, with better money that we were going to spend and allow them to do it. But uh, when it comes to homelessness, Homelessness is just a byproduct of something much more complicated. Mental health is what starts it. Mental health leads into drugs. Drugs leads into homelessness. So we can't just start at the bottom. we got to go into something much more complicated like mental health gotcha. and start focusing on that if we want to tackle drugs. All right. Well, uh, best of luck to you March Thanks the 12th. Sir. March 12th, sir. Yes, right sir. around the corner. Yep. And if you, there's anything they need from me, they can get it from my website, stayamerican.org, uh, and just kind of get any information. Please reach out to me. I'd love to just be the guy that people are looking for as a normal candidate. Appreciate you coming in. Michael McGill, candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District has been our guest on Middays. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. It's Joel Carter, Mississippi State Senator at 11.05. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, so you do recall, Rhino, that was it yesterday or day before? I just made a comment that we were set to receive the earnings report from Nvidia after the bell yesterday. Oh yeah, and whatever happened, the market was going to react. So they had a blowout report, and the Nasdaq's up three sixty-eight. It's a huge day. This has got to be one. It's just 2.36%. Which means everybody that was dropping NVIDIA about this time yesterday feels kind of stupid. They're crying. They're absolutely crying. Because yeah. there was a bit of a sell-off. It took a pretty significant dip sure this did. time yesterday. And and I kept looking at it thinking, did they know something? Do they have some insider info about 
you know, the, the company's earnings report? Well, if they did, it was wrong because they absolutely blew it up. And the stock today, folks, right now, is up $100 a share to seven seventy-five a share. And folks are putting, uh, some of these stock analysts, these market analysts, are putting $1,200 price targets on it. Now, seven seventy-five is kind of hard to buy. You know, it's a little pricey. But it's up 15% today. That's insane. Yeah, you're right. There was a bit of a sell-off yesterday, pre-earnings sell-off. And I was kind of scratching my head. Uh, I've got a sliver, as they would, as they say, <laughs> but um, because I just thought it was a good play, and I'm liking what I'm seeing today. But they reported, they reported that uh, they beat both top and bottom line revenue: twenty two point one billion versus twenty point six two billion. So that's uh, roughly one point five billion more. Their earnings per share five dollars and sixteen cents versus four sixty four expected, but their net income, they're making some money, twelve point two nine billion in net income. Get this the, up over the quarter. I'm talk, all these are figures from the prior quarter. This was their quarterly report. Twelve point two nine billion in net income during the quarter. Same quarter last year, one point four one billion. So. Had a bit of a run there. What's that, about nine times uh, on the net income measurement? Man, 769% is uh, what their earnings per share was up. That is incredible. So total revenue up 265% in a year. So the NASDAQ through the roof today. And there are a lot of people that are wishing they would have bought it yesterday or in prior days. They're doing pretty good. The S&P expected, by the way, to hit a record today, an all-time record. And, of course, this is all because of that artificial intelligence stuff. These guys, NVIDIA, they make these chips, accelerator chips, that are purpose-built to process uh, AI software and also to develop AI software. So they're they're purpose-built for AI tools and it's no secret every company in America is making massive investments in some way, shape, or form in artificial intelligence in their organizations, and they need these chips to run it. And so the computer makers, the server makers, are incorporating NVIDIA processors in their hardware. That's what this is all about. Intel has also announced they're going to be making uh, a new line of chips that's optimized for artificial intelligence. And so I, lo- I love it when these big guys like this are competing and they're always trying to outdo each other. And we, as consumers, benefit. That's just brute force capitalism right there. It's beautiful. And they make money. And we get we get the benefit of their innovations and their technologies. It's awesome. I love it. Meanwhile, our old friend Liz Warren, <laughs> she tweeted yesterday, it is, uh, I'm pretty sure it's her and Ariana Presley. Is she the member of Congress that uh, is, is bald, doesn't have any hair? I think, yes. Yeah, okay. It's They're in a picture, and their heads are big in the frame. <laughs> and it says, and it, both of them are smiling. They're so happy. Big smiles after President Biden canceled student debt for another 150,000 people. More relief is on the way. 
Oh my gosh. And and he's he's exuberant and he's running around crowing about it. She is, they all are. Just give it away. It's incredible. Except when you when you dig down into it, it really is kind of a slap in the face of anybody that has any responsibility when it comes to their own personal finance, especially when it's student loans. Yeah. Because they forgave people who had student loans that took out less than $12,000 and hadn't paid it off in 10 years. And That's right. Have been paying for 10 years. And they still have something outstanding. They qualify to have the rest of it. So it's taking so it's, them. It's one of two things. Either the interest rates are outrageous on these things, and that should be looked at instead of just forgiving everything, or these are people that were never going to contribute to society anyways because they couldn't pay off a $12,000 loan in a decade. In, in 10 years. That's right. And that's what it was required to qualify. It's shocking to me there are 150000 that fit those circumstances who had their debt forgiven. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I saw that as well. So, again, this is the deep state maneuvering around the Supreme Court ruling. Oh, if they do this and this and this and this, we can actually adjust that and do it. It's Fox News, Super Talk News next, and it's Senator Joel Carter. Stay with us. And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back. Hour two of Middays live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And with this crazy market, you definitely need someone to help you navigate it. That is for sure. Today on In the Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with singer-songwriter Philip Lamonds who has written hits for the likes of Hootie and the Blowfish, Lee Bryce, Blake Shelton, and many more. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. We're looking for Senator Joe Carter. He's going to join us at the 12 o'clock hour. Okay, no no problem. little change in the schedule. We'll uh, be delighted to have the senator join uh, middays and see what's going on down there at the Capitol. So, yeah, um, Representative Hines, honestly, yesterday, uh, I, I get it. You know, folks get passionate about uh, certain issues. Um, I, I didn't think that, that his outburst was necessary. I felt it a bit inappropriate, uh, honestly, and... Uh, it was not my intention whatsoever to violate any any rules protocols, uh, but I you know in here in little hearings like that it's a little different than when you're in the chamber. It's it's a little bit more open and interactive. Um, I was just trying to help. I just want to make that clear. I wasn't trying to you know insert myself. And I thought about it honestly. I only did it because a few people said you need to go. You need to and and you know Ryan when you hear things that are just they're not accurate. And a lot of times, it's it's not nefarious. There's no malice. It's just an honest mistake. 
And if you can clarify that and and um, and and bring that to the truth, then that's what ought to happen, in my view. Because you've got lawmakers here that that have an awesome responsibility that cast votes on the basis of lots of information, as you well know. Well, that information needs to be accurate, and that's all, that's. My total goal was just here here's a lot of research I've done that maybe could benefit you when you when you make this decision. Seems like you'd want all of the information and you'd want it to be accurate. And when things get stated, you remember I, I shared the the anecdote of one of the reps was talking about the uh, the mobile spe- sports betting bills being um, presented by Representative Casey Yuri. And they were talking about this 4% carve-out that goes to the state highway fund. And one of the reps stood up and said, well, gee, we already got 80%, remember that, of lottery revenue going to that. And I'm up there in the gallery wanting to say something. But I know I can't. It's it's not appropriate. That's not the way the protocol works. But I'm thinking, no, somebody needs to say something. That's not true. It's not 80%. It's the first $80 of net proceeds in a fiscal year. And... What she was saying is it's 80% of a million and a half a day, which is correct. That's about what gross sales are. Well, that'd be $350 million roughly a year. It's not. It's $80 million a year. Well, that's important. You need to get that right when you're debating this issue. So, And that's kind of similar, not, not quite as big a gap as what happened yesterday. So, um, But all's well. I mean, no big deal. I don't have any hard feelings. And, and again... I, I don't keep scorecards. That's just I, I find that to be a miserable way to live, and I know that there are strong uh, beliefs on both sides of this very complicated issue. And I, what I tried to do yesterday was just frame the problem. Here, here's what I see as the problem, and and uh, it's so that at least you know something does need to be done. What that is takes many forms, no doubt. I propose some possible suggestions to address the issue. I will say this as well. You remember me talking about the Georgia program? They did a kind of a Medicaid expansion light. Uh, And remember, the lieutenant governor did an interview with our J.T. Mitchell uh, last Friday. Um, J.T. uh, worked to publish that on Saturday. We appreciate that. He sent that around to us hosts, and I read it. And I got curious. And, and of course, the lieutenant governor referenced the Georgia plan when he's talking about supporting uh, Medicaid expansion here in the state of Mississippi. And so I, I got curious, and I went and read up on the Georgia plan. How's that going? And the first thing I learned is that I wasn't full Medicaid expansion. It, it only um, it was extended to people whose income is less than 100% of the federal poverty level, not 138. Well, there are a whole lot of people that fall into that more than 100%, less than 138, than there are that fall into the 26% or roughly, which are currently covered at 100%, if you follow what I'm saying there. And then the other thing that struck me is it hasn't been very successful in Georgia. Less than 2,000 have signed up in seven or eight months. 2,000. Well, that's because nobody qualifies. And so I just brought that to their attention that don't don't consider Georgia's model if you want something to really extend coverage, in fact, it's, it's costing them administratively to take to take uh, care from an administrative perspective of less than 2,000 people. So I'll put that on the table. Well, Senator Angela Burks-Hill, 
was uh, was sitting there, and I I posed that as a question. You know how many people signed up? Just wanting you know get their attention. You know how many people signed up in that program? Senator Hill knew. Yeah, thirteen hundred. She knew. She'd already done her research on that. That's right, Senator. I'm I'm impressed. You knew that. I mean, that's kind of what happened. So you see what I'm saying, though. We. You just got to get the facts right. And I, not a lot of people, and you don't expect them to, are going to go research, well, how's the program working in Georgia? And that's, and that's kind of what that was all about. Um, and it, it is true that... Um, well, you would expect not a lot of voters to have to look that up, especially in Mississippi. But if, if the leadership of one half of the legislature of the state of Mississippi is using it as an example, you would hope at least... That half of the legislature would have known a little bit about it. I hope so, and I, and I, and that's honestly why they had that meeting yesterday, so that you know perhaps somebody could shed some light on that. And and uh, by the way, Dr. Hoover from the Mississippi Hospital Association, she after I spoke, I I made the point that you know the Biden administration has made it very clear they're not issuing any any waivers for work requirements for for Medicaid programs. In fact, the only thirteen states that did it have all since eliminated work requirements, except Georgia, whose plan isn't working. Um, so I made that point, and Dr. Hoover made the same point. So those who have have uh, who oppose Medicaid expansion, who have said, yeah, this work requirements thing is, is really kind of a ruse, I actually believe they're right, that uh, the Biden administration is not – I just don't see them approving it, honestly. I could be wrong, but they certainly said they, they're not. Now, honestly, if they see a – a deep red state like Mississippi, who has resisted Medicaid expansion, put in a, an application for a waiver, they may act differently on that. But as soon as they do, you know all the other states are going to reintroduce theirs. But even if that's the case, rest assured, consumer groups will come out of the woodwork to sue the state of Mississippi, just as they have the other states. And I'm afraid we'd be tied up in court. We spent a whole bunch of time and money fighting this thing in court. And I don't want to see that happen. But that's likely to occur. Uh, and, I, and the other thing I would say is, I don't believe for one minute that folks who currently aren't working would suddenly go into the workforce because they could get Medicaid. I just don't believe that. And doesn't it make sense, if you're in the legislature, can we go talk to some of these people that aren't working? I think I've said that before on the program. And maybe they won't come forward and speak up. But first question is, there are jobs in your area. How come you're not working? I think that's a, a reasonable question. Shouldn't we, like, understand what they're thinking before we make these assumptions that, oh, yeah, well, if they had Medicaid, they'd just jump into the workforce? I don't believe that for a minute. I really don't. And that's – and if I bet you this, Rhino. If you asked them, hey, if we, if we made Medicaid available to you, would you go to work? You know what they'd say? What's Medicaid? You believe me? Probably. Not across the board, but a bunch of them. I'm telling you, what's that? <laughs> I'm serious. Um, how many people do you know that confuse and conflate Medicaid and Medicare? All the time. Regularly. Even people who are elected <laughs> are responsible for making laws. And you know what? It's no disrespect to them. It just goes to show how dang complicated this thing is. The government has made it ridiculously complicated. It's It's... 60 years of piling on more stuff in the regs, in the code, to the point that nobody can follow it. At the Division of Medicaid here, as is the case in every other state, you got to have an army of people to keep up with all that junk. 
And then, of course, Yet there's you, never seemingly any appetite to simplify any of it. Zero. Just like our tax code. It's not any simpler today than it was. Man, I mean, the only thing you could say is that by increasing the standard deduction, more people now can file the easy form. But it still leaves a lot of people scratching their head, honestly. And they got to get tax preparers. But don't worry, the IRS has a free service. You already shared your experience using that, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, crap. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> A government website that doesn't work? <laughs> We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Senator Joel Carter now at 12.05. Please stay with us. Hello, I'm Gary Jolly. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. So, Bo and Indianola on the ceasefire text line. Phone finally started working. Time to get some work done. Yeah, I'm seeing different news organizations reporting different industries that have been struggling today because of it. Huh. Okay. Like, for example, Fox News is reporting that pharmacies nationwide are having problems. Hmm. Well, if pharmacies, but that, because the, the data uh, portion of the network, Seems to be fine. It's just the the voice. But they're, I mean, I don't know the exact percentages, but there's still a sizable percentage of prescriptions that come through via voicemail okay. or phone. I got you. Yeah, that's probably true. And that uh, it's rendered uh, inoperational at this point in many cases. Yeah, no doubt about it. We uh, we also want to let you know that there are uh, some bills pertaining to education choice that have been filed uh, on the House side, House bills, about four in particular. House Education uh, Chairman Rob Robertson authored, as well as a Representative Fred Shanks, one of those bills. But uh, HB 1449, that creates a new private education program. It's called the Magnolia Scholarship Account that phases in over five years to universal eligibility. So it starts out with limited eligibility and then phases in to everyone being uh, uh, being eligible. The HP 1452, this was authored also by the chairman, Rob Robertson. This creates opportunity scholarships for low-income students, up to 250% of the established poverty level who are also in D and F districts. So it's more targeted to start with. The bill contains some public school transfer provisions, including including that public school districts may not charge tuition for transfers, and that the home district may not block a transfer. And that's what happens a lot now. So this... This idea of transferring between public schools is available technically now, but both the transferring the home school and the receiving school have to agree. And so this this uh, 
this cuts through that. This essentially prohibits the, the home school from uh, banning a person from transferring. That's what it does. So we'll see where this goes. This is good news. These are, these are good bills, uh, I believe. And then HB 679-1229, authored by Representative Fred Shanks and Chairman Robertson, respectively, these bills address the state's current special needs education savings accounts program really just extends the repealer on the program that's what the first bill does the other bill brings forward the code sections for the purposes of possible amendment we you and i were talking about that earlier uh rhino that looks like most of what we're seeing uh vis-a-vis pers are just carrying forward code sections as a placeholder if you will so that uh, it is filed in um, in time in accordance with the schedule and and um, the body can deliberate it and do a strike all as you indicated which is a very common uh, process approach to doing this so that's why they joke about a bill's not dead until it's dead 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 yeah Exactly. So, because it's got to die in committee, it's got to die at deadline. It's got another deadline to die at. Oh, look, another deadline it can that's die. That's right. That's a good point. So, I, I think we're seeing some significant movement, certainly on the House side, with respect to school choice, education, freedom. I think that's a good thing, and um, I, I look forward to the House deliberating these measures. And, and seeing what kind of amendments are offered and, and where we land. And then, of course, transmitting that to the Senate. I, I think it's safe to say the Senate is less favorable towards education, freedom, and school choice. And I, I say that largely because the lieutenant governor has not really shown that uh, he, at this point, is a big fan of a, expanding on what we already have in Mississippi, savings accounts for special needs students and dyslexia those with dyslexia. So we'll see where that goes. I, I find this uh, to be rather uh, rather intriguing. And I, look, again, look forward to these committees meeting and discussing these bills and possibly offering amendments and then passing them out of committee to the floor, transmitting over to the Senate, seeing what's going on there. The other big thing you probably heard on um, our news during the break is that the, there's a new education formula being proposed that could mean the old MAEP formula is totally replaced. It's called Inspire, this new model that is that is uh, now being considered and being proposed. And I'm pretty sure that the uh, Speaker of the House is uh, kind of driving this. We got uh, Chairman Rob Robertson again, who heads the Education Committee, involved. He's filed this bill. It's called Investing in the Needs of Students to Prioritize Impact and Reform Education. There you go. Inspire Act, HB 1453. And it just basically changes the way the education formula works. I believe Douglas Carswell, President and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, was on with Lucian Smith filling in for Paul Gallo this morning discussing this new MAEP or this new replacement to the MAEP formula, this Inspire formula. And it uh, it just has more weights in it for uh, various factors when, it, when the state determines what the funding should be per student, if you will. And then it um, – and then that's, that is uh, allocated between state and local governments, the local district. 
I believe it starts out with it's sixty six fifty per student. That's an increase of the old six thousand six hundred dollars. And then you have these other metrics that are weighted. So for example, thirty percent for low income students, twenty percent for students who are learning English as a second language. So you can do the math there. You would add that amount for every student in your school that fits uh, those categories, that is in those categories, low income or learning English as a second language. And then there's uh, some tweaks to the special needs, as we talked uh, talked about students who are diagnosed with autism, hearing, emotional disabilities, etc. There's a there's another weight there for those students. That's that is I believe 125 percent. A learning disability is 60 percent. Visual impairments, uh, impairments, deaf, blind, multiple disabilities, 170 percent. So you kind of see the the concept, the idea. You've got these other various factors that receive different weights to the standard base 6650. Right. I mean, if a student is going to require more resources to obtain their education, then it will allot more resources to that student. That's it. And so the local contribution cannot exceed 27% of the total cost uh, based on the formula applied in the schools in that in that district. Um, and there's also some uh, discussion of of a possible consolidation might make sense, in, especially in D and F districts. Maybe they uh, they they are candidates for consolidation as a way to improve uh, not only cost and address costs, but improve the quality of the education. There's a sparsity weight as well. This is an interesting one. Districts with with less than eight students per square mile. So there's a formula for that. If you've got less than eight, then essentially you um, you you subtract the number that actually exists in that that mile uh, from eight. Come up with a number, and then you get a essentially a percentage point for each one of those. So if if you have five instead of the eight, that means three, and that means you get an extra of three percent added to the formula, the base cost, the base allocation of sixty six fifty. So just to make sure there's a proper bottom line. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um and you know that may drive discussion about consolidations. Likely to come from that, I would say as much as anything, when you sort of look at you got districts and schools that are serving very small populations, you know, maybe we need to consolidate so we uh, can Leverage the economies of scale, essentially. And I I expect that that's what's uh, going to happen. So there'll still be required. There's also an attendance calculation. I meant to say that. Still required to attend at least 60% of a school day to be counted in the average daily attendance um, number that is used to also in the calculation. It's part of the formula. Which I wonder why that's even still a thing, considering how many schools are using virtual learning on days they would normally shorten. I agree. and I'm, So I'm not exactly sure if there's any nuances to that. <clears throat> but this really reflects, I think, a lot of them that uh, a lot of districts that have this attendance issue as well. So that, that will figure into the, uh, the, the overall calculation and into the formula to determine how much is needed per student 
and then that's that's a cost shared by the state and the local districts. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. On Super Talk Mississippi. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. The local rock group down the street is trying hard to learn their song. Serenade the weekend squire just came out to mow his lawn. Another pleasant valley sun. Well, that would be Mickey Dolan's lead vocals for the Monkees. That may be one of my favorite Monkees tunes there. <laughs> we welcome to the Yellow Well studio now. It's a Joel Carter, Mississippi senator, represents District 49. That includes, of course, Harrison County. Serves as the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. Well, glad your schedule worked out there, Senator Carter. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Before we get started, are you a baseball fan? Big time. Yeah. So I'm a softball fan, so don't be don't be hesitant to throw some softballs. <laughs> <at> this way. <laughs> uh, no, man. Um, this is this is not like jumping in the ring where there's a gauntlet you got to go through or anything like that <laughs> we appreciate you coming in uh you guys of course have passed at least one of the deadlines i guess right i was just talking about that there's dead then there's dead 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 <laughs> and that happens right the, the right. way the sausage is made <laughs> we're trying to get out the double refer bills this week okay the majority of the committees are um you know it starts getting a little hairy once you start getting close to the general bill deadline yeah and you still got multiple committees to go through so well as usual what about three thousand i think yes sir three thousand i think that's the number i saw man it hurts my head thinking about three thousand bills, but that's like every year. It is. I feel sorry for the lieutenant governor, and his staff. I mean, they're they're all night long I'm trying to go through those. I things. mean, I get anxiety for them watching them go with the stacks of paper on their desk. But, all right, so energy committee. So, what kinds of things do do you talk about? What sort of legislation at the state level might we see? Uh, coming through your committee that uh, you're, you're looking at right now? So we have been focused on broadband for the last four years, and now we're looking at nu- possibly nuclear energy opportunities. As you know, energy uh, economic development highly depends on energy and energy production, and so we're trying to find different ways uh, to increase the capacity on our grid to where we can create more industrial sites, bring more jobs to Mississippi. Um, and we've been looking at the small modular reactors. You, you see them being built in Europe. Uh, we were in touch with a company called New Scale, which uh, they're very, very far advanced than other companies as far as federal permitting goes. They're about 500,000 invested in it already, and they're starting to produce prototypes. Hmm. But we want that manufacturing here in Mississippi as well. Mm-hmm. So Grand Gulf has been a, a very attractive site for the companies that we've talked to. We also talked to a company named Zen Power, and they actually recycle nuclear waste and turn it into power, hmm. which has been very interesting to, to learn about. But there's a there's a bunch of things going on as far as energy production. Um, we also have been looking at the PSC. PSC is uh, – there's been some talk about possibly appointing the commissioners versus elected. I think ultimately what you're going to see is probably a study committee come out this year okay. looking at the PSC, looking at uh, – the, the staff 
and um, just seeing how it's traditionally operated and whether some changes need to be made there or not. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's that's something I think has been talked about before, is it not? It has. Um, uh, some of these uh, elected um, positions, such as PSC, Transportation Commissioner as well, there's, there's been at least some discussion about possibly having those appointed as opposed to elected by the people. And it kind of makes sense, does it not, Senator, when you think about it, that, that the responsibilities and the scope of those offices, it's, it's not partisan in any way. No, and what concerns me, too, is when I mean, you look back over the last four years with some of those campaigns that were going on, there were some companies that were donating to public yeah. service commissioners. Yep. You know, if, if the IOUs can't contribute, then why would other com- companies that produce power be able to contribute? Yeah. So we've tried to close some of those loopholes, um, and there's a lot of that going on. So me and my counterpart in the house brent powell yeah. a great friend we're we're going to do well together over the next four years i'm very confident of it and we just want to clean some stuff up we want transparency and we want to see things happen and we want to see mississippi move forward how how is this um this green revolution and all the dictates and mandates coming out of washington with respect to uh, renewable energy how's that affecting us here in the state of mississippi and how's that figuring into your your policy making so I've seen some some legislation as far as solar goes and solar fields. Um, me and my counterpart, I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to speak for him, but we've had conversations on. My biggest concern is that battery technology is not where it needs to be yet. Um, I don't want the future super fun sites full of windmill blades and solar panels and batteries. <laughs> And if you look at the lithium mining process on its own, it's very, very toxic for the environment. And I think in these third world countries, you're going to see some serious groundwater issues on down the road. So mm. I have some serious reservations when it all comes to that. I mean, all of us, they, they want to only talk about the good things. They don't want to talk about <laughs> the, the, the whole process. Yeah, so. yeah. Makes sense. So with respect to nuclear power, there, there just hasn't really been hardly any new construction, right, of nuclear power plants in this country. We've got one, Grand Gulf, that uh, has been around 30 years or so. I it think. was in the 80s. So they're basically trying to extend the life of those nuclear plants is what's going on right now. It's just okay. so much red tape and regulation on a federal level. Plus, like these SMRs that I'm talking about, yeah. these modular reactors, you're talking about $900 million for one of these things. Um, they can go in excess of, of a billion. So the mm. great thing about them is you can put them right on an industrial site and provide power as long as you have transmission there, which makes the Grand Gulf such an attractive site because the transmission's already there. Okay. Um, and provide, provide the power for that industrial site and not – have to affect pulling money from ratepayers in the in the surrounding areas. I got you. All right. So, do you think we'll ever see another any of these modular nuclear reactors? Might we see any of those in Mississippi? There, it's coming. Okay. It's coming. I, I don't know what the timeline is going to be. It could be seven to ten years. Um, but Mississippi right now is working on uh, something that would make it more attractive for them to produce okay. in, here in Mississippi. And we're actively talking to these companies now. Well, it makes sense, does it not? It does. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not rocket science. Yeah. So. I mean, it, it makes sense. And uh, the technology's proven. Um, and, and even $900 million is not quite at the level of, in the old days, of the really full-featured big plants, whatever, the, the non-modular uh, architecture. So, um, And this technology's been around. It's, it, like I said, it's, it's proven. It's safe. We need it. 
Makes sense to me. Absolutely. We need it. And like I said, the most attractive thing about it is you, they ship these things on barges and you just pop them right on a site. Yeah. And fire that sucker up and you're ready to roll. That's pretty uh, cool. It's been nice to have some for this new Madison project that's coming. Yeah. I was thinking about that. So, and, and that's, a, you know, that reminds me, I guess, uh, to, uh, to see how much you're actually working with the power companies that service uh, the state of Mississippi. Because, I mean, all this affects them to a great extent, right? So Intergy, I have a great relationship with Intergy, Mississippi. And, look, I'm just I'm trying to provide all the resources that they need to make sure that that, that plant is is up and running as quickly as it can. So yeah. we, but, they, we're just communicating back and forth. Right now they're in planning and yeah. they've, they've got things rolling. There's – some legislation that came that came through that was troublesome for them that that I've helped with. Okay. So, but yeah, no, we we actively work together on the, on that. Okay, of course they've been working uh, behind the scenes without anybody's knowledge for about five years with, with mm-hmm. Amazon, uh, just uh, through the requirements and making sure that they could satisfy those requirements. But uh, Haley for Sackley, I believe, reports a CEO of Energy that's going to be about a two billion dollar investment. It is, it is, and so they're going to start with, I believe, a gigawatt and expand to the excess yeah. of three or four. That's a third as much power as they presently provide to their Mississippi footprint, which mm-hmm. is just amazing. So that's incredible. Uh, what else are you working on down there at the legislature outside of the uh, the matter of energy? Uh, I'm trying to kind of uh, stay low key. <laughs> you <laughs> can't do that. This session, no. I mean, energy alone, it's a it's a yeah. big committee, and there's just a lot lot to going on. Like I said, we're trying to clean some things up. Over the last four years, um, there were there were some alarming things that were happening at different agencies and. You know, when we spend the money that we spend in the Mississippi legislature, I want to see results. And sure. so there's some – I'm not going to call anybody out on the radio, but there are certain agencies that we've invest money in, and I'm not seeing results. So okay. we're uh, – me and my counterpart, like I said, we're we're going to go after and make some – and hold some people accountable, hold some, have some hearings, and you know, we, we need to make, make Mississippi – uh, the best it can possibly be, and that's that goes in, from energy production all the way to rural broadband. So. Sure, you feel like you have a good working relationship with the lieutenant governor. You oh, guys absolutely, doing well? absolutely. Yeah. Um, governor Hoseman has been very, very generous, very good to me, and uh, very, very trustworthy of me. So, no, there's never been an issue there. Now, I will tell you, uh, the governor likes to debate, so there there have been some fun discussions. <laughs> Lieutenant Governor's uh, office. That's but, right. I yeah, can imagine. At the end of the day, we both walk out with the with the understanding of what's best for Mississippi, and it's been great. Okay. All right. Well, we appreciate you uh, being able to come in here a little earlier than your rescheduled time. I know you've got to get back and do some other work, so we appreciate uh, Senator Joel Carter for joining us on Middays today, and I'm sure I'll see you down at the Capitol sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Gerard. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back. It is midday. Super Talk Mississippi. So you were just telling me about Law and Order. That's one of the few programs that occasionally I'll actually tune into, especially is it the USA Network, I think, that plays reruns on Sunday nights or something oh, yeah. that I'll sometimes tune into and always like to check the date when they were produced. But one of the uh, primary actors... Yeah, Sam Waterston is uh, stepping away from the role of D.A. Jack McCoy. His final episode on Law & Order will be tonight. Wow, that is incredible. On NBC. And how long has he been doing that? Uh, he's been in that role in one form or fashion since 1994. Gee whiz. Unbelievable. Over 400 episodes, I believe. Man. Man, oh man. Well, uh, that uh, I might have to tune in. That... I haven't watched a a new episode of Law and Order live when it aired in probably over a decade. Wow! So yeah, I might actually have to tune in and see just how it pans out because, of course, in the little synopsis you get the little little TV guide blurb to get you to watch. This is what it says about tonight's episode: When a woman is found murdered in Central Park, evidence points to two frequent park goers, a street vendor, and a tech billionaire. In the face of extreme political pressure, McCoy takes drastic action to make the case. There you go. Man. Well, hey, well how old How old we say he is? 83, 84? Yeah, he's 83. He'll be 84 in November. Man, oh, man. Good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. There you go. On the ceasefire text line, uh, this was during our interview with Senator Carter. There's a large solar farm going in next to my farm, and house what is the downside or danger living next to it i don't know that there is any to the actual farm itself right uh the only risk i've seen is from certain solar farms you can have a reflection if somebody didn't do the right math on the angle of the sun to where you'll have a glare hitting a building or a tree or something that could do a little damage but those aren't typically the kind the type of solar farms we see in the eastern half of the United States, usually those are the ones that are more out west where they, they have a centralized tower and there's mirrors and, yeah, it's all kind of craziness. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's see here on the ceasefire text line, uh, Andy and Tupelo, I see he uh, asked, this was earlier on on the Gallo Show, about reading the school choice bills. You know, you go to the Mississippi legislature site, I don't know that there's – I haven't seen any reports yet. I'm sure there will be some some news organizations, including ours, that will summarize these bills. Other than that, yeah, you got to pour through all the legalese in the in the uh, the drafts that are are formed up for uh, becoming law. Essentially, is the way that works. So there's lawyers that work for the legislature that they're drafting lawyers. Literally, is what they are, and and the members communicate. What they're looking for, basically, I'm simplifying it somewhat, and then the drafting lawyers draft it to ensure that it it meets the standards for uh, being a measure that the legislature can consider and then become law. But uh, let's see. Once again, I can tell you the bill numbers in case you you missed it. But HB 1449, HB 1452, those are the main ones, honestly that are fairly sweeping in nature with respect to um, expanding education choice and school 
education freedom and school choice, I should say, in the state of Mississippi. Uh, Andy says, so if this passes here again, those of us that sacrifice now to make school choice available to our child are left behind. For example, for year one, a child has to be enrolled or participate in Medicaid or CHIP. Yeah, I'm going to say it. I'm sick and tired of working my rear off and making sacrifices while those continually, continuously labeled as less fortunate, which many times translates to people that have grown accustomed to living off government handouts or or flat don't care to attempt to better themselves, continually receive preference over everyday working Mississippians when it comes to use of tax dollars. I'm not really sure I'm following the argument there, uh, Andy, honestly. So uh, initially, the scholarships, the savings accounts would be available to those that are are considered um, less fortunate, as you say, and just have a, a lower income in their household. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure how many of those that would uh, be affected by that, those individuals. But I think if you got, if you read between the lines, Andy, the way the sausage is made at the Capitol in lawmaking, I think this is a step to... Get something done. Remember, what we talked about is the goal phasing in to universal choice. And it's get this done and offer this caveat provision to get the thing in place so we can move and progress towards universal choice where everyone can participate. Otherwise, we get nothing, which is what we've gotten for years. Nothing. That's what this is all about. It's just a it's a it's the progressive nature of of achieving a goal legislatively. We're going to step aside for Fox News, Super Talk News, coming right back. And now, now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. So the uh, report, latest report I'm seeing on the cell phone network outage, uh, Rhino, is that uh, AT&T says 75% of its network is now up. That was just a few moments ago. 75% 75% has been restored, is what they're saying. We've got some folks on the ceasefire text line that have also texted in and said, yeah, I'm back up. So the root cause, all kinds of stuff floating around with respect to what it truly is the culprit, uh, ranging from cyber attacks to solar flares. I don't think any of that is the case. Um, and I, I couldn't find anything official from the company. I know most said that, I guess, something was stated earlier. Dave Hughes is what he said, said this morning that um, there was a corrupted registry that holds the AT&T SIM card numbers. I mean, certainly that, that could be a culprit that could cause such widespread. But i got to tell you, 
stuff like that, it doesn't live just in one registry. That That's uh, usually distributed across multiple so that you can fail over in, ca- in case one is corrupted or inaccessible. So it, that would be a, a very high-risk single point of failure that I cannot imagine they've incorporated in the architecture of their network. But nonetheless, I'm sure we'll get a breakdown. In fact, I've, I've seen one of the federal agencies, I think the FCC has already said, well, yeah, we're going to investigate this. Okay, great. Um, the other interesting somewhat related news is that pharmacies nationwide, you've seen this, are reporting a cyber attack. Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. And I, I didn't realize how that it was nationwide, though. I didn't realize it was that quite that severe. But across the country, and uh, they are advising customers that it has to do with their electronic integration with the insurance companies more than anything. So they're unable to process those and figure out who, how much you owe, honestly, is what it boils down to when you, when you pick up your prescription. Um, and then file it automatically. It's all done behind the scenes electronically. It's pretty. It's a pretty efficient system, much more advanced, honestly, than the hospitals are. But it's a little easier when you're dealing with prescriptions, individual little prescriptions, and goes to one organization from an insurance perspective. But they're working to restore that, and I think they're telling folks might be tomorrow, I think, before they get all that back up. Yeah, expected to uh, last until tomorrow. Huh, interesting. That's always out there, always a problem. You know, I, I have opined that I think it's perhaps one of, if not the largest problem, largest risk to future societies is this kind of stuff, the cyber attacks and cyber espionage, etc. All, all are problems for sure. But it looks like AT&T is reporting that 75% of their network has been restored. And, of course, like I said, we got a few people that have um, texted in and said, yep, I got it. Mine is back. Ricky in Aberdeen did. John Tupelo. Another one on the 662. So, appreciate uh, folks sending us a note to let us know. On the ceasefire text line, we were talking about the new, potentially the new funding formula for education in the state of Mississippi, which would replace the old Mississippi Adequate Education Program, the acronym MAEP formula. And uh, on the ceasefire text line, they failed to fund MAEP how many years now? And they're talking new numbers, new funding, more monies. Laughable. Well, I haven't seen that specifically, other than they're increasing the, the base that you that you start with and then make adjustments based on all these other factors on a weighted basis. Uh, it's going up, what, 50 bucks? Per student, so it's not a significant increase from a base perspective. The feeling is that these other factors—I think this is the theory of the new formula—these other factors that are incorporated in the formula are more relevant and uh, yield uh, a figure per student that is more closely aligned to the financial needs of a school of a district. I believe that is the purpose of adjusting the formula, that the old formula does not necessarily align the monies appropriated uh, to a particular district with their actual um, situation, their, their, the reality of their 
their schools, their classrooms, their districts. I believe that's the driver behind adjusting the formula to this new one. So, yeah, you could, the, the of course, the public school lobby uh, has, has argued uh, quite strongly that the MAEP formula should be honored just 100%, no questions asked. And and they've always balked at the fact that it, it hasn't. I think there are others who say, are we sure that's the problem here? You know, is it more money? Is that what's needed necessarily to improve the quality of education in the state? Because the higher-performing, many of the higher-performing districts get less money. Now, it's true. They typically have uh, more local monies available because there essentially is there's a minimum, but there's no maximum. If, if a school district wants to and the citizens in that district want more uh, public funding going to the schools, they can absolutely do that. And and sometimes, of course, you know, they'll do they'll do referendums for bonds where the citizens in a district will vote to essentially borrow more money to fund well, certain projects. There's there's two things to keep in mind as far as the shortcomings of the MAEP formula. Number one, it asks for more than is required because of a a failure in the the formula itself. And you you see a lot of people especially in election years talking about well the MAEP hasn't been funded like the texture the it hadn't been funded in years. How many times have they fully funded it? Yeah. Well, what do that what do those naysayers say to the fact that education funding has increased pretty much every year while enrollment has decreased? So there's more money per student in the budget now than there has been in the last decade and a half. So that's one half of it. The other half of it is the MAEP formula isn't flexible enough to handle even current school choice and current enrollment procedures, let alone any future school choice or enrollment procedures. Like, for example, if you are a student that moved into a school district and you're enrolling in August, you're not counted on that year's MAEP. Hmm, or if right. you've got a failing school district where they're just losing students, that school district may hang on to their funding for the students they no longer have for years at a time. Right. Yeah, I mean, so it's sending money to the wrong place based on a formula that can't keep up with what's reality. So I think basically what you're pointing out are some of the flaws in the existing formula that have been known. These issues have been known for some time. And I think, again, that's what's driving an, an, an um, amendment to the formula and the proposal to, to just um, uh, compute the amount that goes to each district based on student in a different way, just using a different set of metrics and figures and calculations, essentially, because the old one really didn't align with reality in the districts. The MAEP formula doesn't. So you can certainly point to it all day long and say, well, you're not fully funding it, but it's it's really not the best methodology for deter- determining how much money should be spent per student, per school, per district, if you will. So uh, I, I applaud this. I think this is necessary, and uh, we'll see where this goes, but I, I'm glad to see it coming on board, and, and I'm sure this will be a very – hotly debated issue uh, there at the Capitol. 
But we're getting a starting point on that. So a lot of high-profile issues. Of course, it is the first session of a new term where it's um, you're not likely to take up more contentious and controversial issues in the last year of a term as you approach election year. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to put these things on the table. You see this every, every term in the first uh, session, first year of the term. So we got this. We got school choice. We got Medicaid expansion. We got PERS. Those are all pretty high-profile issues. There's hundreds of other kind of secondary issues that, you know, they're not saying they're any less important. They just don't get quite the attention that these that we've talked about do. Um, and then there's the idea of tax reform still. The governor's made that clear. That's his top priority. I haven't seen a lot uh, along those lines uh, as of yet, but it's probably something that's been pulled forward, like we were talking about, that will allow that issue to be considered and debated. We're going to step aside for a break on Middays, coming right back in the Element Well studio. When I say stop, don't you move a pain. When I say go, just uh, shake your leg and do the mess around. I declare, do the mess around. Yeah, do the mess around. Everybody's doing the mess around. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. back. We're in the Element Wealth Studio. We appreciate you joining us today. So uh, so we were just talking about the possible transition away from the existing MAEP formula to a new one, the Inspire formula. And we'll see where that goes. This, um, I think it is time to, to change it. And you, you pointed out some of the many flaws that exist in the existing uh, the existing program, that I, I just think time has evolved and needs are different and methodologies need to be adjusted to align with those changes, honestly. And there's no doubt that there is uh, a lot of money that is spent on education that doesn't find its way to the classroom, and I think we need to do a, uh, a very thorough examination and review of those costs and determine what could be eliminated. Some of that's been done already by the, the state auditor through a third party, I believe, that did that. But certainly the legislators, I believe, need to be discussing this. Old habits are hard to break, as they say, and a lot of this is just embedded at the district level, has been for a long time, and it is uh, not necessarily the most uh, pleasant thing to talk about, but it uh, certainly should be, in my view, especially when you consider all these other all these other asks. So we got PERS, talked about that. It's going to need some money to shore it up. 
Our uh, Department of Transportation Executive Director, Brad White, we had Commissioner Willie Simmons on the program last week. They're looking for some sort of permanent diversion from one of the revenue sources that goes to the general fund to be diverted to the Department of Edu- uh, pardon me, Department of Transportation to combine with its primary source of revenue, which are excise taxes on, on fuel, just to get more money to transportation infrastructure. So you got that. Uh, you got the possibility of Medicaid expansion. You got the governor, who, of course, still is championing the, the uh, idea of eliminating the income tax. Um, you've got the education scenario here with uh, a new formula that possibly could mean more money uh, going to education. I don't know. I haven't really done a comparison of the formulas to see if that's the case. It may just be sort of recutting the pie somewhat. But uh, lots, uh, I guess, lots of needs, if you will, and, and certainly lots of requests, I think is one way to put it. I know the Division of Medicaid is also uh, seeking a larger budget, you know, feeling like they need more resources to, to deal with their responsibilities. I'll, I'll certainly point out that one of my concerns with Medicaid expansion is that the Division of Medicaid, in fact, doesn't have the resources it, it needs to adequately determine eligibility. It's a, it's a difficult task. Systems aren't in place the way you may think they are to easily determine if a, an applicant is eligible based on their household income, and it is household income. That means all the income being earned in a in the place where the person resides, the address, the official address, that's difficult to ascertain sometimes. We've got a lot of people that don't file tax returns. We've got the least banked state in the country. A lot of people don't have bank accounts. They don't have any evidence of what their income is. No documents. You can say, okay, yeah, there's your income. It's not like the average person that just has a job and has a W-2. You think about when you go to buy a house, you know, they verify your income. They're going to call your employer. They're going to get um, your, your employer to verify your income. Sometimes, if not, you'll have to provide your tax returns, your W-2s. Uh, sometimes it's your bank account. So they'll want to uh, see uh, the cash balances in your bank accounts, and they'll look at an average over a period of time. That takes time and people and money. Then the same thing should apply whenever we're doling out benefits that are based on uh, household income is an eligibility criteria. Same thing. When you think about doing that in Medicaid for 800,000 people, you're going to add another 200,000 possibly? That's a lot of people doing eligibility checking. And it's rather continuous because there's there's a, a redetermination that has to occur. Last I looked, with respect to redetermination in the state of Mississippi, especially given that the federal government ended the public health emergency, which happened last year, last May or June, I think. could have been a little earlier, March maybe, but somewhere in that time frame. And that also uh, meant that the federal government was going to end its uh, additional FMAP, uh, its federal match in the Medicaid program, which was 6.2%. That was passed into law, signed by President Donald Trump 2020, it's part of the CARES Act, the theory being during the COVID period, you didn't want to disenroll anybody, 
and and cause them to not have access to health care. They're likely to more likely to need it uh, given the spread of COVID. So federal government says, look, don't disenroll anybody until we call the emergency off. Here's some more money, essentially, to care for those people. Well, last year the Biden administration says, okay, that's over. Public, we we've deemed it over. Um, thus, we're going to start reducing that additional match. You got to start states disenrolling people who are no longer eligible. Though for the last three years, you haven't been able to do that. Well, that's a big old task when you think about eight hundred thousand people. So the last data I looked at, which showed a state on a state by state basis where they stand with respect to redeterminations, state of Mississippi still has sixty five percent of its population, Medicaid population, to redetermine eligibility. And, and look, I'm not being critical of Medicaid here. I'm trying to point out what a monumental task that is. And so my message yesterday was to the legislature is don't dump this on Medicaid without giving them more resources to administer this program. And that starts with the, a way for them to accurately determine eligibility so the thing doesn't get gamed. I know old Thomas has pointed that out. And, I, and look, I've shared on the program that CBO, the nonpartisan CBO, remember that? Last August issued a report that says we're, thinking, we're seeing $270 billion a year in, in improper payments, what they call it. Meaning, that means basically these people aren't eligible, but we're still paying providers to care for them. $80 billion in Medicaid. $80 billion a year. How much have we given Ukraine? 110, something like that, most of which was assets. And I'm not saying I support that, but, geez, if we could only get as much attention and passion about $270 billion a year as we do Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. Well, part of the problem is when Biden says, all right, the, the roles need to be cleared out, and states start doing that instead of dragging their feet, those states like Mississippi, get demonized by the mainstream media. That is absolutely true. That that's absolutely true. And it and well and of course they always do what we talk about a lot on the program. They always reduce it down to race, do they not? It's all it's all race. It's the marginalized populations. You don't care about them. No, they're not eligible. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the color of their skin. They're freaking not eligible. They make too much money. You, you want them to be eligible? Go pass a law. Good luck. That's the truth. So you either got rules or you don't. And if you have the rules and the rules say your income's got to be at this level to qualify, well, then dang it, nobody should be in that program. And I know that... that it's um, almost like half the country believes rules don't apply to them. Yes, uh, I think it may be more than half, unfortunately. Uh, I hear you. And it, it is a concern. Um, but And I... You know, I'm not suggesting that I got a solution to it other than to pay it a little attention. It seems to me like if the CBO says, hey, guys, hey, Congress, $270 billion a year of improper payments a year, a year. I want to make that clear. How long has Russia and Ukraine been fighting? Two years? Three years? And two. again, and I'm not making Coming excuses for that or saying that I support that. I'm just saying that's 113 or so over two. And, of course, they want another, what, 60, which is insane. But we're talking two seventy billion a year right here inside our borders. Why it goes back to what I was saying about mainstream media. The same way, if you try to bring up the fact that Social Security has a problem, 
You get ostracized and demonized for trying to take away somebody's Social Security. That's absolutely true. If you even bring up the fact that there is fraud, waste, and abuse in Medicaid, you get demonized by mainstream media, and the Democrat politicians run with it. Uh, not only that, i got to tell you, and you may have a different feeling about it, I think they look the other way intentionally a lot of times. Right? Because, you know, they, they don't pay the providers very much, and you know those providers, every time they're treating somebody under Medicaid, in the back of their mind is, I'm losing money on this one. i got to get me some more private commercial insurance customers. They're losing money on it, and I think that if they start really cutting back on it, that they'd have fewer providers accepting Medicaid. I think Medicaid knows that and says, "Oh yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to really uncover too much of what they're doing because they might leave the program." Coming right back. Your window tint. Get off. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. The wind blows a luck in my direction. I caught it in my hands today. We are back in the Element Well studio. Starbucks. There you go. A little reference to my alma mater. Say you came to Baltimore from Ole Miss, the class of 7-4 gold ring. Um, so we've been talking about a lot of stuff going on down there at the state capitol with respect to uh, legislation. And, uh, of course, one of those is reworking the education fun- funding uh, formula from the present MAEP formula to this new Inspire formula. And I did a quick just review of the MAEP formula. It's been a, probably three or four years since I've dug into that. And the, the new one is is different, no doubt about it. And uh, it, it takes into consideration, I think, a lot more relevant factors than the old formula did. The local contribution is seems pretty consistent, in, as far as I can tell. There was an either-or 28 mils or 27% of the program, whichever, is... Um, is the highest. I think it's the way it works. So uh, we'll see where this goes. It's it's a completely new approach. I know there are a lot of folks that think we should just consolidate school districts and save some money, and you would think with all the ones we have, more than we have counties, there's some opportunity for that. That is a very dicey, very difficult. I know if you started talking to my home county of Madison about combining nearby Canton Public School District with Madison County School District, whoa, you want to get folks' candor up, just talk about that. What about combining Jackson Public School District with Clinton or Rankin County Public School District? That's not going to be a happy discussion either. That's not to say there's not some outlying ones uh, around the more sparsely Populated areas of the state, 
where it could make sense. But then you've got the transportation issue. Now, you may just say, well, let's just combine the back offices. I know from combining companies, if you think you just just uh, combine, let's say, two, and you just shut down one and now tell the other that remains, hey, you're now responsible for all these other ones. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. I've never seen it work that way, and I've done a number of, of uh, business combinations and written detailed integration plans and anything like that would get laughed out, honestly, by serious financial people. That's not to say there's not some opportunity. There absolutely is. And then you have the issue of, okay, well, philosophically, this district thinks this is appropriate for our schools based on the people who elected them to serve on the school board. And this nearby district thinks completely differently. Now you're going to combine them. Who wins in the philosophical department, in and just um, what the classroom looks like. That's a, that's a complicated matter as well. So, but no doubt that when you've got some D's and F's that are close by, something's got to be done. There's no doubt about that. That that calls for a thorough investigation. And and from an administrative overhead perspective, seems to me like we ought to just take the most high performing districts. And look at their back office model and perhaps emulate that. I think what you find is that if you distributed the administrative cost in the back end over the total number of, you pick any, any denominator, but the number of students, number of schools might be another. I don't know, the number of classrooms, something, some meaningful metric to compute a figure. You might find that, wow. The higher-performing districts that are scoring A's actually have lower overhead per student, back office overhead, than the low-performing districts. Hmm, that might mean something. Hey, low-performing districts, why don't you get with a high-performing district? Somebody could facilitate that, perhaps, at the Department of Ed and say, let's look at their model. seems to be working well. They're spending less money in the back office, yet they're achieving better results in the classroom, which is what it's all about. That could be instructive. That would be, I think, a worthy exercise and and start making some adjustments based on that. So uh, we'll see where all that goes. But like I said, we got so much going on at the state. It's a... um, a very active year. I didn't feel like last session was too terribly active, but it was the final session in a term leading up to the election. This one promises to be, I would say, Rhino, full of lots of uh, lots of fireworks for us to talk about. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean just uh, lots of high-profile measures. Oh, we didn't even talk about the ballot initiative. I forgot that one. You know, that's going to get a lot of attention, and I suspect lots of back and forth between the chambers. So it, it certainly would give us a lot to talk about. And, and I think what Senator Carter was talking about with respect to energy, I find that kind of exciting. Yeah, I know you and I have talked about it a lot. You're a big proponent of that. Why don't, we, why don't we leverage this new modular reactor technology? makes a lot of sense. We need more power. And um, it's obviously not, uh, not held in, in too high regard these days to produce that power with 
Traditional fossil fuels? Okay, here's an alternative. Seems like we can make everybody happy with that one. Makes sense to me. So I'm, I'm glad to see that we're taking a look at that. Um, and that's what it's all about, is it not? It's trying to thread that needle to, to gain support from a sufficient number to get things like this done. And that's so many of these issues, that's exactly where they are. I mean, I don't see any of them that just have the high-profile ones I'm talking about. It's talking about school choice, Medicaid expansion, nuclear energy, the ballot initiative, tax reform. All of those matters are uh, are such that I don't think any of them are just absolute done deal shoe-ins. I think all of them are kind of tenuous with respect to support, and, uh, and you're trying to thread a needle to get the proper number. And then, of course, you you got uh, the power of the governor that can either – um, sign a bill into law or sit on it, let it become law, or veto it. And then that becomes a numbers game as to is it veto-proof. So uh, that's going to give us a whole bunch to talk about. Do you agree with Biden for giving $1.2 billion in student loans? Pretty sure I've said that's Josh from Laurel over and over and over again. I've been critical of that. I do not. I will point this out. It, it, it just goes to show you how crazy our finances are in the country. I know a lot of people say, well, well, that's just going to be transferred as a burden to the taxpayers. I'm paying for it. That's actually not true, and here's what I mean by that. Your taxes aren't going up because we're forgiving student loans. We're, we're spending money like crazy, money we don't have, and producing $2 trillion of de- uh, deficit a year. Your taxes aren't going up to cover that. The... the Treasury just prints money to cover it. Now, does that cost money indirectly out of your pocket? It does, because the printing of money is inherently inflationary. So it's not taxpayers that are covering it. It's everybody that buys anything is paying for in the form of inflation. Does it come in the form of taxes? It comes in the form of inflation. I just wanted to make that distinction because 51% of the households in the country don't pay any income taxes. 51%. 51%, more than half. And I shared the other day a new report that now shows that the top 1% shoulder a larger percentage of the income tax burden, the top 1% than they previously did. Latest report pegged it at 42%, and then the, the, the one prior, should say, in the latest report is now 46%. So the top 1% pay more than the bottom 90%, by the way. That's straight from IRS data. only point I'm trying to make is all this deficit spending, it's not falling on the taxpayers' as debt they're going to have to come up with one day because we're never going to pay it. It's falling on every person in this country in the form of inflation that everybody's sick of. And i got to tell you, folks, please don't get your hopes up that if President Trump, former President Trump, is returned to the White House, that he's going to magically make all that go away. It just ain't going to happen. It's, uh, it is a monumental task that's going to take a while, if ever, could be achieved. And I, I'm 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 very hesitant to jump on board with the president when he says, 
oh, yeah, we're just going to drill our way out of this. We're going to pay down the deficit. We're going to pay down the debt. Uh, we're going to make inflation go away by drilling. I, not only can I not connect the dots, and, you know, I've talked about that quite a bit, but now the National Review, which is a fairly conservative media source, actually went through some math on that. It's interesting. We might get to that on the other side of the break. Final segment coming up on Middays. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. He only ever gets played in jest, so I figured I would play him sincerely. <laughs> That's true. Well, uh, <laughs> just saw your Twitter. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, Rick Ashley, is there another guy that uh, made it to that level, been a recording artist, whose, uh, whose body and face don't look anything like his voice <laughs> more than that guy? <laughs> oh, it was the band that did Red Red Wine. Was it UB40? Oh, yeah. That's true. They don't quite look like they sound either. Yeah, that is that is totally true. Uh, yeah, so the, someone on Ceasefire Text Line said that the stated proposal says people only have to actively work for a job. This means signing up a government, for, a government form is done for unemployment by phone or computer. Well, this is back to, first of all, I, I haven't seen any final framework i can tell you that that's expected to come out next week there's a placeholder in place uh, in in effect right now uh what georgia the only state that has a work requirement for medicaid expansion which was granted to them during the trump administration it of course is being challenged by a number of of groups the the Biden administration revoked every waiver that was issued by the trump administration i don't see them approving ours uh, I know our our state leaders are our requests for work requirements are optimistic. I don't really think that's going to cause people to go out get work. I do understand that people would say, well, you know, if they're working, I'd feel a lot better about uh, this this essentially this welfare. Uh, and but no doubt, uh, it's no question um, that ascertaining that is difficult. Whether or not someone is actually actually working. Uh, Georgia's program says they have to be working, volunteering, studying, or in vocational rehab. Now, you see the problem with how many, how much resources you would have to have to verify stuff like that on a fairly regular basis to ensure. That they're current. I mean, it's the same thing for a lot of these other benefits, like unemployment benefits. Of course, it's a little bit easier to track that just because you've got some employers as a backstop. But that's just difficult. And that's why I say, if you're going to do this, you're going to impose those work requirements, you you better ensure that, that the Division of Medicaid 
has lots of resources. And honestly, Rhino, when you think about a lot of the other benefits that are based on household income that are that are administered, they come from the federal government, like TANF, that are administered through um, other agencies. Maybe we need just one group. Just get rid of all those resources that work for those independent agencies. Maybe we need one just entity, agency, if you will, that's just in charge of eligibility. Because the eligibility is pretty similar. And in I think by combining those resources, perhaps you get better with those single set of assets, better at uh, running down all that information to determine if someone's eligible. That's, it's difficult. Again, it doesn't make it any easier in a state that where a lot of people don't have a bank account and they don't file tax returns. So I agree. The Department of Transportation and Education received millions from the lottery. That funding is still not enough. Yeah, we've been through that quite a bit. Um, the, the budget is about $1.5 billion for the Department of Transportation. The lottery sends them $80 million. It's not nothing, but it's no, it's not nearly close to what the folks at the Department of Transportation say they need, both for what are, what are called capacity projects, that's new roads and bridges to accommodate additional capacity as the, the term implies, and then their maintenance to take care of existing stuff. So the problem is you get these capacity projects that are combined federal-state. They're federal roads, for example. You get money from the federal government. You've got to prove that you've got a, a recurring revenue stream to take care of them after they give you the money to build them, to construct them. So that's what they're seeking is something that's, that's more permanent and would be yeah, more money than just what the lottery sends them, which is it's a good thing in my view. It's eighty million bucks, and what goes to education is about twenty five. So education is uh, has a budget of about two point three billion. So we're talking one percent of it that comes from the lottery. Uh, let's see what else we got here. When they take the people out the free money, they they are in no, in November. They just won't. I don't know exactly what you're saying there, but I do think we have a more fundamental problem with respect to having such a low labor participation rate, Medicaid expansion, or any other government benefits. Is it going to solve that problem? Uh, and I, I think it is uh, would be wise and prudent on the part of the legislature, like I suggested, to get into the grassroots and figure out why are these people not working? What? Why don't they have more ambition? I think I'd start with that. Seems like that you'd want to improve your quality of life, and you could do so if you went to work, especially with uh, lots of jobs available around the state and the nation. The NASDAQ, before we go, is on fire. It's up 449, which is incredible. I don't think I've seen it up that long in a while. Well, we're out of time today. Back with you again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.